You're listening to Michelle Redfern and Mel Butcher on Lead to Soar, bringing you the best leadership advice and mentorship from around the world. Learn more at leadtosoar.com. Michelle, it's great to be back with you for another episode of Lead to Soar. It is terrific to be back, Mel. It feels like it's been a minute or two. It has been a while since we got to record, so glad we're doing this again. So our topic today is loyalty is for Labradors, not for women. Talk to us about that. How did this topic even come up for you initially? Well, I think it's come up with a range of conversations, but the absolute catalyst for this was that you and I both read an article from Harvard Business Review, which had the title, Stop Undervaluing Exceptional Women. So, of course, I went, oh, I'm going to read that because I want to hear what this is all about. And bottom line is that the premise of the article, there are many things in it, is that women are expected to be loyal and men are not. When it comes to job hunting, job hopping, staying with it with an organization or not. And of course, that created a bit of energy in me to go, well, hang on a minute, what's going on here? And then I started thinking about conversations that I have and have had with women about, well, should I go for the job? I feel disloyal because, you know, I've been headhunted or tapped on the shoulder and I feel like I'm being disloyal. And I go, hang on a minute, hang on a minute. And I have use the expression, loyalty is for Labradors, not for women. So that's why we're here today is to talk about why misplaced loyalty may be holding people back and also why loyalty works both ways. So again, we're teasing out some of these themes that perhaps some of us might have had, as I often say, we've been marinating in these societal expectations that you know, society has for women since birth. So how do we pull some of those apart and really examine them and say, does this stand true? Should I really be shaping my life, my career moves, my future economic well-being on some of these societal norms, which of course often fall into very narrow or rigid gender stereotypes? Right. So As many of our topics have, there's two sides to the coin. There's how women show up and the choices that you can make. And then there's what is happening in leadership, what is happening in management that oftentimes negatively affects women. So let's frame out some of the biases here that this article in particular brought up. So they did some research, they did some surveys, and Their results suggest that managers are more comfortable hiring women for jobs they're overqualified for than men, equally qualified or overqualified men, because of some gender-based assumptions, particularly when it comes to retaining talent. So what does this assumption look like? It looks like assuming that men will prioritize career advancement over loyalty to a single firm. So I thought this was interesting. Men with high qualifications, they're seen as about 20% more likely to jump ship. And so they're often not selected to be hired for positions they're perceived as overly qualified for. 
and the opposite happens with highly qualified, overly qualified women, people are not worried about them leaving for better opportunities. These managers make the assumptions that women will stay loyal to where they're working. And in particular, the authors noted that this assumption was tied to the idea that women value their relationships with their coworkers, value those relationships so much that they'll stay even if they're, they are underemployed and underpaid. Let's have your comments, Michelle. Well, you've chronicled there a number of biases that, or mindsets, which create biases that occur in workplaces and occur in people. So number one, let's talk about the motherhood penalty, the fatherhood reward, which I'm drawing a long bow here, but let's talk about the fact that when a man is seen as a good company man, ambitious, driven, and what have you, and he has a wife and children, there's a reward. Men get a reward and are seen as ambitious. And part of that is we have to support this dude because he's the breadwinner and he's got a family to provide for, et cetera, et cetera. The flip side is we've got mum or the woman who is, well, yeah, she's got all these qualifications. Yeah, she's great and what have you. But, you know, her job's not as important as her male spouse. And as a result, we don't really need to focus on her career as much because, hey, she's, and I'll use the expression that I heard not so long ago, oh, she's just working for pin money, you know, some play money. Excuse me? I kid you not, this is 12 years ago, I heard someone say, well, of course, you know, her husband's loaded and he's got a great job. She's just working for pin money. So it doesn't matter. These are these rigid gender stereotypes that tell us the place that men and women have in the workforce. Now, how does that apply to what we're talking about, the loyalty factor? Well, it applies because we say, well, we have to support him no matter what decisions he makes because he's got a family to provide for. And she needs to be grateful for whatever she's got because let's face it, this is a second priority kind of role. I'm being very unsubtle. Of course, this plays out in much more subtle, nuanced ways. So that's bias number one. Bias number two is that, well, men are all about outcomes and we've got to help them. They drive for outcomes. They lead for outcomes. And we know that they are better at outcomes than women or we perceive that they're better. And of course, women have these great skills around engagement and communication and team dynamics and people love them and blah, 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 blah. And with those two expectations, those again, very rigid gender stereotypes, but again, and we perceive as leaders, he's good at this, she's good at that. So as a result, she's never going to leave because she loves her team and they love her. He's ambitious and driven. So of course he's going to leave and that's okay. There's just two of the biases of those gender biases or gender dynamics that play out in workplaces that create the mindsets that then fuel these kind of situations. And then of course, we've got the prove it again bias. So men are hired for their potential women are hired for their past performance and women have to prove it again and again and again. We know that less women are recruited for the potential that they may have in the future than men are. So 
we've got that laid here. So he's saying, well, okay, I'm going to go off and build rocket ships. Have you ever built rocket ships before? No, nope, but I've got the potential. Okay, we're going to support you to do that. A good family man, you're ambitious, and hey, you've got potential. She, meanwhile, is building up her track record of amazing accomplishments, and she has to cart that round in a giant suitcase every time she has a conversation about her upward mobility to prove again and again and again that she can do the job and you know and this then also plays into this other it's not a myth because it happens but this other behavior of women need to be 10 out of 10 qualified to do a job versus men who go I've got three of the criteria out of 10 I'll give it a shot so we've got this layer upon layer upon layer of gendered expectations which create dynamics which create biases that mean that we expect women to stay in their job and be loyal. And we're going to be really, really disappointed in them as well when they show ambition, when they say, I've got the potential to do that. It's really, really tricky. So this loyalty business is layered and nuanced and really complicated. Yeah, I've got a couple of thoughts here and then I'll segue into the big question I want to ask you. So when I first read that line about the perception that women will stay in their job where they're underemployed, underpaid because they value their relationships with their coworkers, for me, this really tied back to the idea that women are expected to be nurturing and how that is so closely tied to the double bind around the expectation that women are kind and sweet and nurturing, but we put them eventually, if someone, if a woman makes it there into a leadership role, that expectation remains. And then she's seen as not leaderly like, like not enough of a leader to be in that role of authority. So just want to remind our listeners here that the double bind still exists and it's real. And the double bond creates the double standards. We hold women to a much higher account than we hold men. But by the same token, I'm going to be, well, slightly controversial, but we know that when it comes to rigid gender stereotypes, women and men, and, and dear listeners, I'm being very binary about the use of gender here because, as I've said a number of times before, we just don't have enough data yet to talk about people along the whole spectrum of gender. But when we talk about binary gender, there are these expectations of women and men. And as a result, we know, and so our leadership definition, using the greatness in you to achieve and sustain extraordinary outcomes by engaging the greatness in others. We know from years and years and years of research and conversations that when it comes to engaging the greatness in others, bosses say that women outperform men, hands down. Now, does it mean that they really do? Not necessarily, because this is about perception. Women are perceived as outperforming men on all of the aspects of engaging the greatness in others, team dynamics, recruiting and nurturing diverse teams, communicating to people, all of that, you know, relationship management, interpersonal skills. We are perceived as being really good at that. So you know what? We actually have to be really, really bad to be known as not nailing that. Conversely, though, men are not 
seen as having natural talents in that. So they actually have to be supremely good at it to be noted as a leader who engages the greatness in others. Does that mean that men aren't good at that? Absolutely not. Of course, all of us know men who are extraordinarily good at all of the interpersonal skills, the relationship management skills, building and growing diverse teams, high-performing teams. But because society has this expectation, they actually have to be extraordinarily good to be noted as one of those people. So this is where these gender dynamics and biases create an expectation which isn't true. So I know we haven't got to call to action yet, but my first call to action is for each one of you listening is really challenge your assumptions about is she really that good at that? Is he really that bad or vice versa? And we've got to say, so when it comes to she'll stay because she's really loyal to her team, really? Let's go deeper. Let's really challenge our our thinking about that because I think we're going to go there now. If we assume that she's loyal, we assume she's going to stay because she loves her team, she loves her boss, yada, yada, yada. What does that mean? Are we leaving her alone? Are we not helping her? Are we not enabling her upward career mobility? So all of these mindsets create actions and consequences. And the consequences are if we just rest on the assumption that women are loyal, what does that mean, Mel? What does it mean? What are the consequences of that? What are the consequences? Definitely. Well, let's let's go there. So let's talk about what should employers do? People who have leadership authority, management authority, hiring managers, what do they need to do? Well, number one, make sure you're paying everyone properly for their skills and contribution, not their perceived loyalty or otherwise. And we've heard lots and lots and lots about the way I think many, particularly in the knowledge worker realms, how people's expectations about employment and the way I do life and what have you have have shifted since the global pandemic. And that's created a lot of conversation and action and consideration by leaders, rightly so. But what I want people to do, and I want leaders and decision makers to say is, am I paying women for the job that they're doing and the potential? Or am I assuming that she's, you know, so loyal? Am I looking at my talent management strategy with an unbiased or am I checking my bias or checking my mindsets about it's okay we won't need to put Mel onto the high performance program because she loves it here and she loves her people her clients so much she she'll be patient because you know she's a loyal citizen so that would be number one let's really examine put that gender lens over all of those decisions we're making about talent because I think some of the yeah, Mel will be right to wait for a couple of years because, you know, she loves it here, yada, yada. I've got to tell you that those are words that I've heard and it's unacceptable. And you know what? This is the benevolent bias as well. This is not malicious. This is not I'm going to support men over women. This is simply about, remember, we've all been conditioned about the role that women and men play in society, in work, in power, with leadership. And we've really got to step back every time we're making these decisions and say, 
have I got these two people of two different genders on the same playing field here? Are they starting their race at the same point? Yeah, another way that these biases manifest is as the idea that the man that we're evaluating, well, he has aspirations to advance, surely. I mean, obviously he does, versus assumptions about women. And I've certainly seen this around like, oh, well, she has young children at home, so she doesn't want to advance. She doesn't want to travel. She doesn't want to do those things. Those are biased assumptions that managers can have. And that is the benevolent bias. And it's it's fresh in my mind because I just wrote an article about it yesterday around the double bind and benevolent bias. And benevolent bias is as it says. And the example I, I use often is, okay, we've got South by Southwest, huge tech conference in the US every year, which is, you know, coveted. And will we send Mel or will we send Joseph? Well, you know, Mel's got caring responsibilities and it wouldn't really be fair. And it, So we'll send Joseph. Okay, so Joseph gets to go to South by Southwest or whatever conference it is or whatever environment it is. And Joseph gets exposure to new networks. He gets exposure to decision-making and decision-makers. People get to see him in action. And that is a career-enabling activity, whether it's a conference whether it's an event, whether it's a group assignment, you know, like a cross-functional project. And Mel does not. And so as a consequence, yeah, yeah, Mel's still got a job and Mel's loyal and Mel does great things and what have you. But as a consequence, Mel has missed out on the opportunity for some real career accelerating, the ability to demonstrate the value she adds to the organisation. She's missed out on that. And that's bias. But that's okay because Mel loves it here and Mel loves her team and she loves the workplace. She's a good, loyal person. That's wrong. It's wrong. Another idea we want to put forward for employers here is around retention practices. So I had a really nice conversation with Barbara Bruno on a previous episode that touched on this. But Michelle, why don't you speak to that a little bit more particularly in this context? So the race for talent, the war for talent, and particularly in certain sectors is is well and truly on. So we see all sorts of strategies around retention of employees. And anyone who's in the talent game knows that it, it costs a lot more to acquire an employee than it does to retain them or to source an employee. So when we see things like, well, let's go around the grounds and work out who we've got at risk and what we're going to do about that. We often have retention bonuses or we have non-monetary ways of compensating our key performers. And more often than not, what I see, particularly in my work as a DEI advisor, is that a gender lens has not been applied to that process. So we more often than not will see men have the golden handcuffs put on them, put on them, as I say, you know, so they'll be locked in with a retention bonus, shares, options, and things like that. And women, not as much because it is assumed she's not going to take flight. It is assumed that she's loyal. It's assumed that she's not as ambitious and driven as him because again, of these gender biases. So 
again, for leaders, when you're looking at your retention program, I want you to run a gender lens over it. Are we making assumptions about who's a flight risk and who's not based on facts or feedback? Or are we letting our gender biases, gender dynamics dictate the way we divide up a pool of resources? And I would say on the opposite way when companies are downsizing. And certainly at the beginning of the global pandemic, I was very disappointed to see an organisation that had been in my ecosystem and made lots and lots of noises about the advancement of women and supporting women and what have you, but their first swathe of redundancies were dominated by women. And I certainly had a number of women from that organisation contact me to say, WTF, Michelle, you know, this is not what we've been told for the last three years. We've been told that women are important, except we've just worked out that they're not. Now, I obviously wasn't privy to the conversations and the decision-making for that organisation, but I do know from conversations I have been privy to, both in my role as an advisor as well as an executive, that there will be assumptions about, well, she's got a husband and she'll be okay because there's a breadwinner that can support her and she's not the main breadwinner. It's so infuriating. Ah. I know that this happens and yes, yeah. it's so infuriating. Yeah. So I want to leave one more thing for employers here. If a talented woman comes in your doors that you want to hire, don't shunt her into a lower level position just because it's the one she applied for. If you want to hire her, find a place Create a place if you have to where she can contribute with her full capabilities and be compensated for those contributions equitably. So the bottom line punchline here is underemploying women is discrimination by another name. I really appreciate that phrase, Mel, underemployment. I'd like everyone listening to think about an amazing, talented woman that you know who's not working to her full potential. Why is that so? Is it because she doesn't want to and that's fine if she doesn't want to? Or is it because her talent and her potential have not been recognised? And guess what? If she's not working to her full potential, neither is your organisation because you failed. You failed to bring her value to the organisation. So, yeah, I appreciate that terminology. All right, let's shift over to talk to women here. So I'm sure that we ruffled some feathers around this idea about loyalty, but what we're saying here is misplaced loyalty is not okay, but break it down for us. What are you really saying here when we say this line that loyalty is for Labradors? What does misplaced loyalty look like? So misplaced loyalty looks like you staying somewhere or not making a decision about your career or taking control of your career because you might be concerned about the impact it's going to have on other people around you. And that is a mindset that I really want all of you listeners, dear listeners, to examine because there would be no one in your network that admires you, supports you, respects you, that wouldn't want you to achieve your full potential. No one. So your 
idea of loyalty is misplaced if you are staying somewhere because you think you'll hurt your boss's feelings, you'll hurt your team's feelings, you'll hurt your colleagues' feelings. It is misplaced because they would want you to be successful. So I want you to examine that mindset and that mindset manifests itself in ways like, look, I won't have that conversation with the recruiter who's contacted me because I feel disloyal. Okay, so in 35 years' time, when you're looking at your retirement balance and you haven't made a decision that gives you an extra 10 or 15 or 20 or $30,000 a year, think about compounding interest, ladies. Will those people top up your retirement balance because of your loyalty? No, of course they will not. And yes, I'm being deliberately provocative here. So I want you to think about your long-term economic mobility and your satisfaction. And also, I want you to know that people who admire and respect you want you to be successful, no matter where that might be. Sure, people might be disappointed if you're no longer working with them, because but they'll go, gee, that was great working with Mel. I'm so happy that she's moved to somewhere where she's going to be successful, etc. So that's mindset number one. People want you to be successful. They don't want to hold you back. I promise. Let me pick up with, I want you to be successful. And in particular, we want you to earn boatloads of money. We want you to earn what you're worth. And hey, more if you can get it. Because of exactly what Michelle is talking about. It's not just about like saving cash. It's not about buying nice purses, especially in a place like the US where your retirement is not taken care of for you. It is so that you can be independent. Having money means having independence. It means having choices, access to choices, even things like healthcare. Choices can be really critical around healthcare, around where you live. Think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Your decisions today are going to dictate that kind of stuff. And listeners, we've done a couple of podcasts on money mindsets. So we encourage you to have a look at those as well. And particularly listen to Mel's story about her relationship with money, which is really important. So that's number one. Well, I want to say that my favorite one was the discussion with Cindy Gallup. Yes. So it's making sure that you're setting yourself up for success to have those choices. And it's also standing up for all of the women who are going to come behind you. If you do some extra work to ensure that you're paid fairly, that helps lay the groundwork for the women who are coming after you who also deserve to be paid fairly. So this is a such an important issue. Okay, so misplaced loyalty with a company can look like staying in a toxic work environment. It can look like your career growth is stalled. It can look like as simple as not being properly compensated. And it can also look like not having access to development opportunities. And, you know, and I'm a big fan of the 70-20-10 development model. 70% of our development happens on the job. 20% happens through coaching, mentoring. 10% is in formal environments like courses and MBAs and things like that. That's 70% on the job. That's a really important part. And leaders, again, some messages for you, but also for our women listening. 
We want you to be in environments where you are continuously having the opportunity to develop your professional skills. If you have reached a stalemate where you are, misplaced loyalty means that you're no longer learning and growing. And importantly, it also means that your company is not investing in that. It doesn't have structures and processes and systems to ensure that you're 70%, that you've got an opportunity to continually learn and grow. So your misplaced loyalty means that you are accepting that you're not worthy of development, that you're not worthy of learning. So there you go. Okay, so talk to us about what women should do. What should our women listeners do if they've come to realize that they are in this situation? Well, I'm a big fan of, you know, stop, breathe, reflect. And if you realize that you do have misplaced loyalty, so now it's time just to consider what does that mean? And what am I going to do about that? For some of you, you're ready to start making moves. And if you think, okay, I've outstayed my term here in this environment, in this current role, this employer, whatever it may be, now's the time to say, so what am I going to do about that? That means activating your network, making sure that you've got your CV and your LinkedIn is up to date and showcasing your strengths, you know, and I always say the three parts, the problems you solve, the value you create, the outcomes you deliver, make sure that's up to date and then start looking around. Now, some of the activities around start looking around, that's not necessarily looking external. If you think you're in the right environment, maybe it's time to have a conversation with your boss or your boss's boss to say, you know what, I'm ready. I'm ready for the next assignment. I'm ready to lead at the next level. Can we have a conversation about making that happen? Because maybe, yes, they might have thought, yeah, she's loyal and we'll just leave her alone and let her sit there. Maybe they don't realise that you're ready. And as fabulous as many managers and leaders are, they are not mind readers, dear listener. So, have a shaping conversation with your boss. Have a shaping conversation with your boss's boss and say, I know that I've kind of been doing a great job here and there, but I'm ready. So let's talk about what my next move looks like and how together we're going to make that happen. That then gives you an opportunity to say, is this the place for me? And are they going to support that move? Or do I need to do some other stuff? So do give your your boss and your boss's boss the benefit of the doubt and bring them into that conversation. Because again, you're helping to change their mindset around your loyalty and what you're ready for. Right. And I just want to highlight something that you said, Michelle, because this really does have to do with stop, breathe and reflect. If you're the type of person who can get emotional once you have a realization like this, like, I'm underpaid. I didn't get the promotion I should have got these things. It's it's a very emotional. What Michelle just described doing is going into a meeting with the boss, the leader, whoever it is that you need to talk to, and finding a way to bring them into your circle of helping you find success. The conversation is not about demanding, give me this or else I'm out of here. That's not what she said, right? She articulated it in a very nice way to bring someone else along the journey with you 
Oh my gosh. It's about caring about the outcome, right? The outcome you want is to get someone on board and advocating for your success as well. And how do you do that? You do it with some skilled communication techniques. So I also want to point out that if you go and look at some of these articles that we're talking about, one of the pieces of advice that they give is to go out and get some actual outside job offers. And they're implying or even directly saying to use that as leverage to get yourself the raise and promotion you want internally. I would say use that method with caution. You need to be very aware of the workplace politics, the economic dynamics, human dynamics within your workplace before you take that approach. So Michelle, do you want to comment on that one a bit more? I think that's a trigger you can pull once. You know, the old saying of the boy who cried wolf. So I certainly know, and interestingly enough, had a conversation with someone in my life just in the last week about a potential employee and that they were in the process of recruiting and who pulled out at the last minute and uh the person said to me, yeah, they just used us to get a pay rise where they were. So I think be very careful with that one. So if you've got a genuine offer, I'm struggling with this one a little bit, Mel, because, you know, again, I have my own internal biases and and what have you. So, um, you know, in my head, I've got the, what would a man do (laughs) here? If you've got an offer and it's really great and you're absolutely considering it and you're going to go and resign, that's great. But if you've got an offer, you can be strategic about that. If you've benchmarked, and of course, we want you to benchmark your salary. We want you to benchmark. We want you to know what you're worth, what you should be getting paid. So use that information strategically. And look, we've got a couple of other podcasts about that. I I realize we're just about at time, so we can't, um, I don't want to go into any details, but yeah, be very, very strategic about the way you use an external offer to negotiate a new environment for in your current workplace. Ultimately, if you do have to vote with your feet, we support you. Sometimes you can't get what you deserve where you're sitting and you have to move on. Absolutely. Absolutely. So loyalty is for Labradors, folks. And Labradors are beautiful. You know, they are loyal and you are doing yourself a disservice if you are blindly loyal to any individual or organization. Yeah, I'll just throw this last bit in. A long time ago, um, a mentor said to me, a company will never treat you better than when they're trying to recruit you. So remember that. That idea applies in this situation as well as when you're looking for a job and looking to get recruited. Hmm wise advice. Thanks, Michelle. This has been a great discussion. There you go. See you all next time. Pleasure. Thanks, Mel. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Lead to Soar. We sincerely appreciate your honest, positive reviews. You can leave questions at leadtosoar.com for Michelle and Mel to answer on future episodes. Until next time, we hope you'll use what you've learned here and lead to soar.